I'm not sure what your plans are for Thanksgiving dinner or lunch. Maybe it will look a little bit like that, maybe it won't, um, hopefully not quite like that. Um, but sometimes uh, we need the innocence of a child's prayer uh, to remind us of what we have to be thankful for. Because so often, I mean, to be honest with you, we start Thanksgiving prayers and uh, sometimes even I as an adult kind of think these formal prayers and I need to thank God for these big things. And sometimes we forget that there's so much little stuff that happens all the time. There's so many little things that we need to be thankful for and praising God for. And uh, whether it's, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know that I've ever thanked God for peace um, just because I, I don't know that I ever will. Um, I'm sure somebody is thankful for peace. But if that's all I had, I would be thankful for it. I just have never been that hungry, um, to be honest with you. And so... Uh, we're going to look at this morning this idea of Thanksgiving, and it may look a little different for you this year. I know for some of you, um, you may have always had a tradition that you've always traveled to a certain place, and, and you may not be able to do that this year. I know that for some of you, you've always had certain family members that you spent Thanksgiving with, and you may not be able to do that this year. And so um, there things may be different. In fact, I'm, I'm really upset that Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is, is going to look very different this year. And um, and I, I don't know if I told you this story, but a couple years ago we were going to introduce our kids to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And our kids were used to parades where you went and you just got bags full of candy. And so we watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and they were really upset that like the TV wasn't throwing candy out to them. What's the point in a parade if you can't have candy is kind of their thought. Um, so it's going to be different, but despite all the differences that are happening this year, we still have so much to be thankful for. In fact, that verse uh, that popped up at the end of that video is, is probably one of the most common verses about Thanksgiving in the Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. It's the very ending, the closing of his letter, and Paul simply says, Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so um, we, while we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians this morning, we're not going to be in chapter 5, we're going to be in chapter 3. And it's interesting that if you look in chapter 5, you see this idea about giving thanks and everything. And so if you also remember, we kind of started the series that was the second of the series. We looked at Paul's prayer um, in the beginning of this book. And so it starts off at the end of the book. We have this idea of Thanksgiving. At the beginning of this book, um, in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. And so what we see in the book of Thessalonians, the first book of Thessalonians, is we see at the very beginning there's Thanksgiving. At the very end there's Thanksgiving. And we're going to be in chapter 3, which is right in the middle, and again, this idea of thanksgiving. But there's another idea that's connected to all of the to thanksgiving, because we've seen it in the beginning, the middle, and the end, is that every time Paul mentions thanksgiving, there's a connection with prayer. You see, you may, when I, let me go back and read verse 1, chapter 2, and I don't have it on the screen for you this morning, but chapter 1, verse 2, says, We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayer. So there's a connection between prayer and giving thanks. And that passage that, we, that flashed up on the screen, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, give thanks and everything. If you back up one verse to verse 17, it's one of those very short verses, pray constantly or pray without ceasing. So throughout this whole book, um, and pastor we're going to look at today, there's this intimate connection between the people of God giving thanks to God and their prayer life. And so it's almost as Paul is telling you, listen, you can't really have a vivid prayer life. You can't really have the prayer life that you want if 
Thanksgiving is not part of it. All right? So if all, of you, if all you're doing in prayer is giving this wish list, giving this thing of, God, here's what I want, here's the people I'm praying for, if that's all you're doing, you're really missing out on this aspect of prayer. In fact, your prayer life is never going to be what it was designed to be if you're missing this part of Thanksgiving. So we're going to look this morning, and we're going to finish up this series of Paul's prayer by looking at this connection found um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, where we see Paul praying for a church that he is very thankful for. And uh, whether you're gathered here in person this morning or you guys have been able to join us now online, thanks so much for doing that. Um, wherever you're at this morning, we're going to look at this prayer two different ways. We're going to look at it from what Paul is actually praying and a challenge to live out what he's praying. But we're also going to look at it in retrospect because we're going to look at it as if this is what Paul is praying for and we have seen these prayers answered, then we ought to be thankful when we see these prayers answered. We ought to be thankful for these opportunities that we see. So let's jump into the text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 7. And we'll read through verse 13. Verse 7 says, Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecutions, or persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live, if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experienced before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now... May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. And may He make our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for this time that we have together. And God, we are so grateful, uh, God, that at least one day a year we are, are kind of drawn to this idea of being thankful. God, forgive us for when we are not thankful. Forgive us for when we have overlooked your blessings because we were wanting something different. God, forgive us for the times that we, uh, we didn't see the blessing because it didn't come packaged the way that we thought it should be or we wanted it to be. And so, God, despite all that's happened this year, despite all that's gone on uh, in our lives and the situations we find ourselves in, God, I pray that we find the innocence of that little girl in the video. God, I pray that we will just find the greatest joys in the simplest things. God, that we will see those blessings. God, even the color pink and pretty dresses and even peas that we may not like. God, help us to find those joyous things and realize how blessed we are. God, despite not having what we want, we have what we need. And so, God, we thank you for that this morning. God, I pray that you speak to our text and through this text this morning. I pray that you will speak to our hearts. God, I pray that we are wide open to you this morning. God, to be challenged by you through this passage, God, that you, we will be challenged by you to live out what Paul was praying, not just for this church, but for us as well. And so, God, I pray this morning that we are challenged to live this out, but we are also challenged to be thankful even for this moment we have now. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2008, there was a professor, a psychology professor at the University of California, 
His name was Dr. Edmonds, and Dr. Edmonds um, is now the leading um, uh, expert, if you will, or one of the leading experts on happiness, all right? And I didn't know you could be an expert on happiness. I thought that just happened, but apparently you can do clinical research on happiness, and so this guy has done this, and so in 2008, um, he found this simple way to live a happier life, and according to him, he found something that's often overlooked that will increase your happiness by 25%. All right. So take your level of happiness now and increase it by a fourth. All right. So you get 25% extra happiness. And he simply says this. This is what he wrote in his book. He wrote a whole book about this. That 25%, you can be 25% more happy if you'll be more grateful for what you already have. That's it. That's the secret to being more happy. All right. Or happier. All right. And he goes on. And in fact, he states a little. He said, we have discovered that a person who experiences gratitude is able to cope more effectively with day, everyday stress, may show increased resilience in the face of traumatic-induced stress, and may recover more quickly from illness and benefit from greater physical health. He went on to say that gratitude is one of the few things that can change people's lives in a measurable way. Did you hear all those benefits? One, you, you will be able to deal with day-to-day stress. Two, if there's tra- trauma in your life and trauma-induced stress, you can cope with that better. Three, that you can recover quicker from illness and you can have greater physical health. All of this, if you are grateful for what you have. And I share that quote with you for two reasons. One, because I think everybody needs to hear the, the benefits of Thanksgiving. I think everybody, I don't think anybody in here would be like, hey, you want to be 25% happier? Mm, no, that's fine. I'd rather be 25% sadder, okay? I don't know anybody that that's the case. I don't know of anybody that says, hey, if I could tell you a secret, that will make you healthier and, and more resilient and able to recover from illness better, most of you would be like, mm, no, that's okay. I'll just be miserable and unhealthy and, and not like it at all. Right? We want to know this, and so I want to share that quote with you to kind of uh, give you the benefits of being thankful this morning. But there's another reason I want to share that quote with you, because I love it when, when we discover something new in science. Did you hear what he said? We've discovered this. This was groundbreaking for him, and the only problem with it being groundbreaking for him is he's about 2,000 years too late. I love it when science catches up to the Bible who was written thousands of years ago. Because what he writes, this idea that if we're grateful for what we have, then we can have joy and we can, have, uh, we can better deal with these difficult situations. You see, what he's so excited about, that, that spent hours of research and all these clinical trials, all he had to do was look at this letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And really all he has to do is look at the life of Paul. And he could have very quickly found out that if you're grateful for what you have, You can deal with stress a whole lot better. If you're grateful for what you have, there's joy even in difficult times. That Thanksgiving can bring joy even in the hardest, most difficult times. And so I love it when 2,000 years after somebody makes this great discovery and we as Christians are like, you know what, we've been there. We, we knew that a long time ago. Thanks for finally catching up to us. Thanks for finally getting on board with what we've been telling folks for hundreds and thousands of years. And so Paul has this in verse 7. He, he wants to be very clear in verse 7 that he's in a difficult time in his ministry. He says in verse 7, Therefore, brothers, in our, all of our distress and persecution, this word distress uh, comes with the idea of being restrained or being confined to a place to prevent you from doing something that you want to. And so it kind of has two aspects to it. There's a, an active 
constraint and there's a passive restraint. And an active restraint would be just that. It's where you actively confine someone. So it's like putting them in jail or chaining them to a guard so that you physically restrain them and they cannot go where they want to go because they are stuck in one location, right? That's the active distress, okay? The passive distress, and, and what an official could do, is that he can make it so he's not actively holding you one place. He's just really making it impossible for you to go where you want to go, okay? So this would be passive distress. This would be passive persecution. So I want you to think, most of you, when you drove here this morning, you, um, you crossed a bridge, okay? Now, I can feel comfortable saying that because you either came over Second Creek, Third Creek, Fourth Creek, Fifth Creek, or some other creek, okay? Most of you, to get here this morning, you came over a bridge. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment... If for some reason you were driving on your normal routine and you were trying to get to church the best you can, you came up to the bridge and there was, there was somebody there at the bridge, grumpy old troll, whoever you want it to be, okay? All right, just, sorry, just popped in my mind, just had to go with it, right? So there's something or someone that, that stops you at the bridge and says, you legally can't go over this bridge. And you're like, well, I got to, I need to get to church and this is, if I go over this bridge, I can get to church. And he says, no, you can't go over this bridge. And you say, well, I need to get to church. And he said, that's not my problem. I don't care how you get there, but you're not coming over this bridge. You're not crossing this bridge. And so in your mind, you're thinking, well, this is the the way I've got to go. And let's be honest, it is the way you want to go. It is not the only way that you can go. If you really wanted to, you could find a different road. And maybe there's not a grumpy old troll at that bridge. But there's a different way you could take. If you really, really had to, you could go off-roading and go down through Second or Third Creek. And maybe it's a smaller one. You'd be fine. You can do that. Okay? So he didn't technically confine you to an area. What he did was he stood in your way from preventing you from doing what you needed to do. So he didn't actively constrain you and say, you can't leave this area. What he did was he passively constrained you and said, I'm just going to make it harder for you to do what you're trying to do. The other way you, uh, you passively constrain someone is you just deny them the necessities. Deny them what they need uh, to, to do business or to do what they want to do. So imagine, if you will, if you were going to, if you were traveling along a town or traveling along the road and you stopped in this certain town. And maybe you have a Ford pickup truck. We'll just pick that one because that's what I have. And so, for some reason, the government of that town has said that nobody who drives a gray Ford pickup truck can do business in this town. Right? Now, he hasn't constrained me to that town. But what he's done is if I drive in that town and I need gas then he's not allowing me to get gas because I can't do business in that town. If I'm hungry, I can't stop and get food in that town because I drive a gray F-150 or whatever it is, that, whatever reason. Maybe it's because you're a Christian or maybe it's because uh, you look funny or whatever it is. They, they can make whatever rules they want to. But they, they make it impossible for you to get the things that you need to get what you want or to get where you need to go. And so chances are, if I found out that that was the case, that, hey, if you pass through Cleveland, they're not going to let a gray F-150 get gas at the one gas station that you got there. So they're banning you from doing business there. Then I'm not going to do business here. I'm going to take business elsewhere because I can't do it here. So even if I wanted to set up a business, I couldn't do it because I couldn't, I couldn't have the necessities that I needed. Put it in a church term, because this happens with churches, and not only across the, the globe, but sometimes even in America, they will put in zoning laws or different restrictions of like, well, you can put a church there, but you can only have a parking lot that's going to hold three cars. 
And you're like, but I got this huge building. I got all these people that are coming. And no, sorry, we're not saying you can't build a church. We're just saying you can only have three cars in your parking lot at the time. So this is the passive restraint. This is the passive idea of withholding something that's going to limit what you're able to do. And so Paul honestly can deal with both of these because he's felt both this active and passive distress. He's felt both this active and passive persecution. You know, several times Paul has wanted to come and visit the Thessalonians. He makes that clear as we read the letter. And, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute. He wants to, but there's this active and this passive distress that gets in his way. The active, he's been in jail several times. He's actually been chained to a guard several times. The active restraints have been put on him. And so he can't get where he needs to go. There's also been these passive restraints that have hindered his ministry that um, other leaders will come into a town where he's at and he's preaching the gospel and the Jewish leaders will show up and they'll cause trouble and they're like, listen, you don't want to listen to him. We're not saying he's got to go anywhere. We're just saying that if you're a real Jew, you won't listen to this guy. If you really believe in God, you won't listen to this guy. And so this this passive restraint, this passive blocking of doing what God's called him to do. And so Paul is identifying with both of these. And he says, listen, the circumstances of my life are not easy. It's very difficult. I'm in a very difficult time. And so for many of us, what we would expect to see Paul doing is going through this kind of time of depression. If, if, If some of us had to deal with the things that Paul had dealt with at this point in his ministry, man, we would be curled up in a fetal position just waiting for something worst to happen to us. And that's what we expect Paul to kind of see this depression. We, we'd expect Paul to be sad or, or maybe even mad. Some of us react that way. We're just mad or, or sorrow or gloom. We'd expect to see Paul being so downhearted because he can't do what he wants to do. But that's not what at all we see. In verse 7, if we keep on reading it, we find that Paul is just the opposite. He says in verse 7, Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution... We are encouraged about your faith, about you through your faith. You see, Paul is delayed and come to the Thessalonians. He really wants to get there. And part of the reason he wants to get there is because he's afraid that someone else is going to come and lead them astray. He's afraid that he gave them the gospel and then he had to leave for a different reason. And so he's really afraid that he didn't give them not the full gospel. They've got the full gospel. They don't have a full understanding of, of how the big picture works. And he's afraid somebody's going to come in and kind of fill their head full of junk while he's not there. And so he really wants to get there, and he's really afraid they're going to be led astray. And so he can't get there at the time. So he does the thing he thinks is next best. He sends his right-hand man, Timothy. He says, Timothy, I'm really worried about these guys in Thessalonica. I want you to go, I want you to go check on them for me. Go talk to them. Go see how they're doing. See if the church is even still there. I don't even know if the church still exists anymore. Go check it out for me. And so Timothy does that. He goes to the Thessalonians and he comes back and he tells Paul this great news. He says, listen, the church is doing well. They are still meeting. They are still active. Things are going well for them. And so despite all these difficulties and trouble that Paul is having, this faithfulness by these people that he wants to get to, it's still good. And so Paul is encouraged because he realizes that God is still at work even though it's not involving him. That God is still doing and working in and through the Thessalonians. And so this good news not only encourages Paul, but it brings him comfort. That's another word there. And it prompts him to give thanksgiving for what God is doing. If you look down in verse 9, it says, How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy that we've experienced before our God because of you? Another way to translate that is basically to say, How can I ever stop thanking God? For all the joy that I've experienced because of you. 
Or how, how could I not thank God for all the joy that I've experienced because of what He's done in you? And so the joy He's talking about is the joy of their salvation. And, and we get this idea that the joy He's talking about in the face of God or before God, this is where the angels rejoice when a, saint, when a sinner becomes a saint. You remember that passage when he says, you know, this is the angels will sing over one who comes to know the faith. That's what Paul is saying. In the face of God, before God, this is the joy that I've experienced. And so I'm encouraged, but I'm so joyful in what God is doing in you and through you and that you're still working together, you're still growing in the faith. And I am so thankful that we can have this type of joy. And so I want you to see something this morning. I don't want you to miss it. That we can miss so much joy in our life because we spend so much time focusing on what we don't have instead of being thankful for what we do have. You see, Paul could have been depressed. He could have been upset. He could have been mad that he couldn't see the Thessalonians. He could have kicked the dirt and stomped and, and just been depressed. He could have been all these things because he wasn't doing what he wanted to do. He wasn't being able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. But we don't see that. What Paul has is not a personal visit to the Thessalonians. What he has is a letter from a friend and a visit from a friend that says, listen, things are going well. And Paul says, I'm going to dwell on that. I'm going to focus on that, and I'm going to thank God for that good news. You see, so often, if we don't hear bad news, we turn the news off. We wait to hear the bad news. We wait to hear about something bad that's happened. In fact, if you read the news, it's almost always bad news. Why? Because the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. That's what people want to hear, the bad news. But what about the good news? Don't we rejoice in that? Shouldn't we be excited about that? Shouldn't there, there be a reason to give thanks for the good news? I mean, just the fact that it's not on the front page, just the fact that, that, that we didn't hear about it in, in media somewhere. Man, there's so much that we should be thankful for, even the small things. And so I want you to understand that, that I don't know how this pandemic has affected you in this past year has affected you, uh, but I don't know the difficulties that you were walking through or that you're in right now. But I want to share this. I, I, this I do know, that if all we do is focus on the bad in this world, then our life will rob us of the joys that are right in front of us. See, Paul could have focused on the fact that he wanted to be there in person, but he couldn't, but he doesn't. Instead, what he focuses is on what God is doing outside beyond his limits, what God is, is doing without him. And, and so we're going to miss so much of the blessings that we have if all we do is focus on the bad, if all we do is focus on what we don't have. And so Paul reminds us that, listen, even in your hardest, most difficult times, regardless of what this year has thrown at us, regardless of, uh, of how difficult your life has been in the past week, month, six months, year, whatever difficulty your situation is, most of your answer lies in looking at what God has given you and being thankful for that rather than what God hasn't given you yet. Because it's coming, it just hasn't gotten here yet. So if we'll focus more on what God has given us and less on what we don't have, then we'll have this idea of thankfulness. We'll have this idea of gratitude. And I want to share with you that you'll reach a whole new level of encouragement and joy. And so that's what we see in this first part of Paul, uh, this this before his prayer, is that, listen, I am so thankful. There's so much joy in the presence of God in front of you because of you, because I've heard that God is doing something great with you. You want to know what to be thankful for? Just look at what God is doing. Look at what God is doing in your life. And you're like, well, Michael, you don't know. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know how dark I am. You don't know how this situation is. I know that most of you are going to leave here in a little while, and you're going to go eat lunch. And you're going to sit in a house with a roof over your head. 
you're going to have a plate that's got food on it. Most of you are going to leave here today and you're going to get in a vehicle that's going to get you where you need to go. And when was the last time you thanked God for those things? When was the last time we thanked God for the little things that He was doing and didn't really depend on us in the first place? Focus on those and you'll start to experience a whole new level of encouragement and joy when we focus on what God is already doing and what all God has already done for us. And so Paul is thankful for these Thessalonians and he's thankful that they're continuing in their faith. Uh, and he's thankful that they haven't been led astray by someone else in his absence. And he goes on to really get into the part of his prayer that he really wants to spend time with them. This is where he's focusing his prayer that he's afraid, like I said, that somebody's going to come in and kind of lead these folks astray. And so he wants to get together with them face to face. And he states that pretty clear if we look at uh, verse 10. And this is part of his prayer. He says in verse 10, he says, As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. See, he wants this bad. He wants it so bad that he's, he's praying beyond ordinary measures. That's what it means to pray earnestly. He's not just praying that they get together. He's not just praying that it's every once in a while and passing. He's making this request both night and day. It could be literal that when he wakes up in the morning, he's praying, God, I want to go see the Thessalonians. When he goes down for his, for, or he lays down uh, at bed at night and his nighttime prayers, God, I really want to go see the Thessalonians. It could be literal. That he's praying this in the morning, he's praying this at night. It could be that he's, I'm praying this all the time. This is constantly on the forefront of his mind. This is constantly what he's praying for. He's being consistent in his desire. This is the desire of his heart, that he wants this more than anything else. And so he presses on in verse 11 to ask God to help make this happen. And he says, Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now, there's something very interesting in this verse that I can't just gloss over because it's a beautiful thing that Paul does here. He speaks of God in a very personal tone. Okay, Did you notice how he addresses him in this? God, our Father himself. Okay, So it's very personal. He's using the idea of God. and He uses God the Father. Jesus uses God the Father. But when most people in the first century thought of God, they didn't think of Him as this close, loving Father. They thought of Him as this divine being that was kind of off in a distance somewhere. And all of a sudden, Paul brings Him close and he says, He's like your dad. He's like your father. He's our father together. And that's how he addresses God. But then notice he addresses Jesus different. He uses the word Lord for him. And that's not unusual. He uses that term a lot. But the word Lord means to be a master, to be the one in control, to be sovereign over everything. Actually, it means to have ownership and authority over anything below. Right? It means that you are supreme and superior to anything else. So I want you to see what he's done. Because most people, when we think of God, we think of God as this far-off, distant being, and, and he's distant out there. When most of us think of Jesus, we think of this guy who, who, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about him showing up in a manger, and he was born this little bitty baby, just like you and I was. And, and so we think of him being very personal. We can relate to Jesus. We, we, people saw Jesus. They've talked to Jesus. They were friends with Jesus. Jesus, they ate with Jesus. We tend to think of Jesus in these very personal terms, but Paul reverses those two. 
And he says, I want you to think about God in these very personal terms as your father, but think of Jesus in this kind of supreme terms. Think of Jesus as the Lord and the master of everything. And so what he does is he really does this amazing thing. He takes the, the relatability of God and says, you can relate to God, but you can only do it through the recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ, that we can come to God and we can claim him as father, but only if we come to him through Jesus as Lord. You See, that's the only way that you're going to get to God. That's the only way that you're going to have God as fathers if you come through Jesus as Lord. So in the midst of his prayer, Paul gives this is very rich and very deep theology about the divinity of Christ. And he does it partly because in this prayer, in this letter, he knows this is what's lacking for the Thessalonians. This is what he wants to add to them. Did you notice how he ends verse 10? And I know we're going back to verse 10. He, the main reason that he wants to come to them, he didn't want to come and have a potluck dinner. He doesn't want to come to them and have Thanksgiving dinner. He doesn't want to come and fellowship and hang out. He wants to come to them to complete or to finish or to perfect what is lacking about their faith or in their faith. He wants to spend time with them so that they can learn from Him. Now, understand they're already saved, so He's not coming to... It's not that they're lacking salvation. They got step one and two, but they didn't get step three. No, they already got that part. What they're missing is kind of this bigger picture, this, this object of their faith and how they already understand the gospel. What they may not understand is how the gospel fits in this bigger picture of who God is. And so Paul is praying for this chance that, that they can get together, they can learn together, they can grow together, that they can, they can have a deeper solid knowledge of who God is because if He is the object of our faith, the more we know about Him, the stronger our faith can be. We'll never grow in faith if we're satisfied with our knowledge of who God is. All we do is just say, hey, this is the God and we're okay with it. The more we know about Him, the stronger our faith becomes. The more it becomes perfected. The more it becomes complete. And so we become less lacking in our faith if we learn more about Him. Because the more we know about Him, the easier it is to trust Him. The easier it is to put our faith in Him. The easier it is to build our life on Him. And so I want you to see kind of in retrospective that if this is Paul's desire, if this is what Paul wants more than anything else, this is what he's praying for night and day, that, that Paul desperately wants a chance to get together with the church so they can learn and grow from Him, if that's what He's praying for, then man, this is what we ought to be thankful for. Do you hear that? This, this is what we should be thankful for. This was Paul's heart. This was Paul's desire. This is what Paul wanted above. The very first thing that he mentions in prayer is, I want to be with you so that we can learn and we can grow in faith together. Do you realize that we're the answer to that prayer? Now, yeah, we're not in Thessalonica. We're in Cleveland and things are different. But I want you to understand, this is the answer to his prayer. This is what he was praying for. He has been praying so that we can get together and grow in our faith together. That's the whole purpose. I'm praying that's the purpose you walked through those doors this morning. I'm praying you didn't come for Thanksgiving dinner because we ain't got it. I'm praying you didn't come for a potluck lunch because we don't have it. I'm praying that you came so that we could see each other face to face. We could be each other to, with each other face to face. And even online that we can grow in our faith together. We are the answer of what Paul is praying for. And so listen, if that's what Paul is praying for and we see the answer of prayer, we need to be thankful for that. I don't know about you, but if 2020 has taught me anything, it's that we should be thankful for this. For this opportunity. Because I'm going to be completely honest with you. Up until a few months ago, I never thought I'd come to church and you wouldn't be here. 
I never thought I would come to church and there would be five of us or ten of us in this building because that's what it took to get sound and, and a camera going and you would be somewhere else. And so up until a few months ago, I'm going to be completely honest with you, I took this, which is what Paul was desperately praying for, I took it so for granted. Even online, I took it for granted. And I took it for granted because I never thought it would be taken away. I never thought that there was never going to be an opportunity or, or a time in my life when we couldn't do this. And we couldn't do it online. And suddenly I began to think about all my brothers and sisters in Christ who are all around the world who desperately want this. Who can't do this for legal reasons or for persecution reasons. And so I think if nothing else, we need to take what Paul is saying and say, listen, I'm praying that we can get together and we need to stop taking it for granted and say, God, thank you that Sunday morning i got a place I can go. I got a family that I can sit with. I got a family that I can be surrounded with. I got folks that, that I can join together with and watch. And I can grow and be strengthened in my faith that we can do this together. Because let's be honest, you can do it on your own. But there's something lacking if we don't do it together. This is what Paul is desperately praying for. And we are the answer to that prayer. And we should be so thankful for what it is that Paul is praying for. We are so thankful for this opportunity D.A. Carson sums it up like this. He says, How much more would our church be transformed if each of us made it a practice to thank God for others and then tell them what we are thankful for God in them to be? What we need is a prayer life that thanks God for the people of God and then tells the people of God what we're thanking God for. You see, we need to be thankful that God has brought us together as saints, has brought us together as a family, that we have this opportunity to gather together, either physically in person or spiritually online, that we can have this opportunity. Because let's be honest, most of us up until months ago never thought that it wouldn't happen. And I'm not telling you this to scare you, but there's a good chance that sometime within our lifetime it's not going to happen again. Maybe for a short period of time, maybe for a long period of time, I don't know. But I do know we need to stop taking it for granted. I do know that we need to enjoy it and be thankful that we have it in this moment. See, there's a second thing that we need to be thankful for is that, that we need to be thankful when we see love growing, not just between us as Christians, but when we see it going out from the church as well, when there's love that is growing in verse 12. Paul continues his prayer with his second request, and he says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and everyone, just as we also do for you. And so Paul uses this very similar language in the book of Philippians, and he kind of gives this visual image of a river. Right? He says, you're, you're a river now, you're a creek now, if you will. But I'm praying that God will pour out so much love on you that it's like a downpour, drenching of rain. And if you've ever seen a creek or a river that, that when it starts to rain, it starts to creep up a little bit and creep up a little bit. And it'll creep up for a while and it stays within the banks. Right? It's not a problem. And so Paul's first part of his prayer is that I'm praying that you start to fill up a little bit. Right? That, that your love will grow in depth, and so, but you're still kind of within your banks. And so picture this, this is our church that we're going to fill up and we're going to grow in together in love with each other. All right? That's what he's praying for, this unity idea that now we are able to do more than we were before. Think about it, when this little bitty creek is flowing and it's just got a little bit of water in it, it can do a little bit. But when it starts to rain and there's a whole lot more water flowing through it, man, it can move rocks. 
It can move and, and shape the land that's underneath it. That's what he's praying for. I'm praying that there's this unity and growth within you that begins to, to increase. But then notice he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, I want you to be filled up with love. No, he uses this great word. I want you to overflow. I'm praying that, that you are this river of love and it starts raining just a little bit and then it starts to downpour. And so your, your level of love, your, your amount of love starts to grow and it can't be contained anymore. Then it starts to, to overflow the banks. You can drive, I think it's Third Creek down here. You can drive there uh, when it, a couple weeks ago. If you drove through that uh, or you drove over the bridge, you saw exactly what I'm talking about because the river was, I mean, that river's like this big. And a couple weeks ago, it was like half a mile wide. Why? Because it overflowed the banks. It couldn't be contained anymore in what it was there. It, it started to spread out, and it went horizontally to all the area that was around it. It began to cover what was once dry land wasn't dry land anymore. Now it was wet land just like the river. And so understand what Paul is praying for. I'm praying that there's so much love that is poured into you through Christ that you can't contain it all in yourself in your church, that it's got to flow out. I'm praying that the walls of this church aren't tall enough or big enough to contain the love that's going to flow out. And so your love is going to fill you up, and then it's going to flow out, and it's going to stretch out. And what used to be dead, dry ground all around you is going to be saturated in the love of Christ. That's what I'm praying for. That's what Paul says he wants. That, that it begins to cover everything. And so he's praying that the love that we have as a church, the unity that we have at church, doesn't just stick here, doesn't just stick in this place, that it will cover up the street next to us, that it will cover up the houses all around us, that when people look, they won't even recognize what used to be there anymore because now the love of Christ has just covered everything. And he uses this beautiful image because in those days, this is a radical idea, I want you to understand this, because this changes the way that they were viewing love and affection in those days. In the first century, and I'm going to be honest with you, it probably hasn't changed a lot, but in the first century, their view of love was really vertical. Right? Now, I don't mean vertical in a good way like it was just between you and God. Right? I'm thinking vertical is in like social and, and, and power structure. Okay? That's how love and affection went because it was really tied to loyalty and benefits is what it was. And so think of it this way. If you had a boss or someone who was rich, they give you a job in exchange for your loyalty. And so there's an affection, there's a relationship between you and the boss because the boss is getting your loyalty. He's getting work from you. You are below your boss, but you are still getting something from your boss. You're getting a paycheck, or you're getting a bonus, or you're getting something. And so that love is vertical. There's an affection and, and, and uh, a, a connection that is vertical. Because as long as you're getting something from someone, then you have an attraction to them. You have an, a, an agreement with them. Right? So that's the vertical love. He says, but what's missing in this is the horizontal love. You see, we love when we benefit, when we get something from someone. But let's be honest, your coworkers don't have anything to give you. The people on your same level have nothing to offer you. Because if they did, they wouldn't be on your level. They'd be above you or they'd be below you. Right? You don't get loyalty from them. You don't have an affection towards them because they don't benefit you in any way. Your loyalty is to your boss, and so it's vertical and not horizontal. There is no loyalty, there's no affection, there's no love spreading out horizontally. It is all vertically because I benefit from someone above me or I benefit from someone below me. I'm dependent on them. 
But we have nothing horizontally. And so Paul is saying, listen, I want you to understand this. I want your love and affection to grow not only vertically, but I want it to overflow horizontally and stretch out horizontally. And so that we begin to love in this way that's not self-seeking. We begin to love in this way that I'm not loving the next door neighbor and I'm not loving the person working next to me because I benefit from them. I'm just loving them because God loves me. I'm just loving them because there is so much that God has poured into my life, I just want to pour into them. And if I get nothing in return, it's perfectly fine. Because that's not the reason I'm called to love. I'm called to love because of what God did for me and the love He showed for me. And so this is Paul's prayer. He's praying so great. And he's praying, praying so deeply that they will love overflow vertically, but they will love and overflow horizontally and stretch out to all the people on the same way. So again, let's think of this in retrospect, that if this is what Paul is striving for, if this is what Paul is praying for, then this is what we ought to be thankful for. We ought to be thankful that there's love between us. We ought to be thankful not only that we get together physically together and, and online together, but we ought to be thankful that there's unity within us, that there's love between us, that there's a connection that happens within this church that you don't get anywhere else. We ought to be thankful that there's a connection and an affection within the love of Christ that you don't find anywhere else. We're going to have our community Thanksgiving service here in this afternoon, not here, sorry, outside this afternoon, and we're going to connect with brothers and sisters that we shouldn't connect with any other way, but the love of Christ builds us together. It's the only thing that builds us together. It's the only thing that connects us. And so this, be thankful that there is this vertical connection, but be thankful also that we ought to be thankful when we see Christians going out to serve. We ought to be thankful when we see Christians who go out and do, not for their benefit, but for the benefit of others. We ought to be thankful when we see others doing things just because the love of Christ. And there's one last thing, and probably the biggest thing, that this passage tells us to be thankful for, and what Paul is praying for. It is that we need to be thankful for the salvation that he offers and the power that he has to transform lives. In verse 13, he simply says this, May he make, God, make your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. There's two ideas that are going on here. This idea of, of being blameless it means that you are spotless, that you are without defect. That there is no flaw anywhere. And so he is praying that our heart is spotless and without defect. Right? Now, you can read the Old Testament. You can find out that's not the condition of your heart. Some of you know perfectly well that's not the condition of your heart naturally. You see, we read in Jeremiah that our hearts are full of stone. We read in Jeremiah that, that our heart is full of evil. There is nothing good in our heart. There is nothing good about us. And so when we become to this point, and he says, I'm praying that you have a blameless heart. The only way to achieve a blameless heart is to realize that what God has done in offering salvation to you. The only way to have a blameless heart is to have the clean blood of Jesus to pass through it, to transform it. And so what Paul is really saying is, I'm thankful and I'm grateful for this point of salvation, that, that we should be thankful that God can wash us and has washed us white as snow, that when we come to the cross, when we come to the Lord Jesus, that everything we've done in the past can be completely wiped away. Do you understand the word blameless? spotless. It doesn't mean there's little specks of your past scattered all over. It means they're gone forever, ever washed away. It doesn't matter how big the spot was. It doesn't matter how bad the spot was, how deep the spot was. It's gone. Listen, some of us need to be thankful that our past is gone. 
Some of us need to be thankful that God doesn't keep a record of all of our wrongs. And that all the mistakes that we made in the past, God, come back and haunt us. Why? Because we have a blameless heart. We have a spotless heart through the work and the cross of Jesus Christ. That we are blameless and spotless. And when He sees our heart, it isn't stained, it isn't marred, it doesn't come with all these little asterisks and all these little tags of, hey, what about this time and what about that time? And there's no way God could use none of that. Our past is gone. And He moves on to the second part. And he says, blameless in holiness. This idea of holiness is really more moral purity. And this is the continual work of salvation. This is not that salvation isn't complete. The salvation of, is a once and done thing. But this is the continual work that God is doing to transform our lives to become more like Him. You see, we just sang this song of, Lord, prepare us to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. We just sing about that. Why? So that He can reside in our hearts. So that He can transform our life to be like Him. And so I want you to understand what Paul is doing. He's saying, listen, God didn't send Jesus just to get rid of your past. He sent Jesus to erase your past, to transform your present, and make you ready for the future. You see, your salvation is not just what's happened in the past. It's not just erasing your past. It is now in the present that God is making you holy. That He's transforming your life each and every moment of your life that you give to Him. That He's transforming that. And so He's preparing you for the time that you are future in going to be with Him in the coming of His saints or the coming of Jesus with His saints. Whether that's the end of the world or whether that's when He calls us home. He's transforming our lives. He's preparing us. Guess what? For us that are Christians... This is our practice run for what heaven's going to be like. And so we've got a past that's completely erased. We've got an opportunity now to start living like heaven is going to be our future because it is. And so God not only trans- erases our past, but He changes our present and He gets us ready for the future. And we can be ready for this. And so we ought to be thankful for every aspect of this. We ought to be thankful that there was a God who loved us enough. That even when we fought against Him, even when we rebelled against Him, even when we said we didn't want Him or didn't think He existed, He sent His Son to die for us. We ought to be thankful for a God who, when we shook our fist at Him, and we spit on Him, and we beat Him, endured that cross for us. We ought to be thankful that God didn't say, Hey, you made the mess. Now you're on your own. No, we got a God that says, You made the mess, and I'm going to clean it up for you. We got a God that says, I don't care how bad you think you are, how bad you are stained, I'll wash you white as snow. We got a God who gave himself on the cross and watched his son die on the cross so that we can be blameless, so that we can have a present and an eternity with him, and we ought to be thankful for that. You see, like we need that little girl's prayer, sometimes we just need to be reminded of all that God's given us because we've taken it far too often for granted. And for some of us this morning, whether it's the cross of Jesus that we've taken for granted, whether it's the Holy Spirit working and living in our life that we've taken for granted, whether it's our gathering together that we have taken for granted, whether it's the love that He's poured out on us and we should be pouring out on others, sometimes we've just taken it for granted. And sometimes we just need the reminder that this is what Paul was praying for. And this is what you have to be thankful for. And so I don't know what this year's brought for you. I don't know how difficult this year has been for you, but I know there's a God who's given you more than you deserve. I know there's a God who loves you more than you'll ever know. 
And I know there's a God who held nothing back so that you can be with Him and pure and blameless and holy for all of eternity. And if you don't have nothing else to thank God for, you've got a God that loves you. Let's pray together.